welcome everyone to another episode of Ego Check with the ADM. And today I am joined by Dr. Janina Scarlett. Uh, she is a clinical psychologist and very excited to have her on the show. She's currently working at the Center for Stress and Anxiety Management, providing treatment for PTSD, anxiety, depression, and a host of mental health issues. She's also been a contributor to numerous books, including Star Wars Psychology, Walking Dead Psychology, and Game of Thrones Psychology. And the book that we'll probably be spending the most time about is her most recent effort called Superhero Therapy, A Hero's Journey Through Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, uh, which I'm very eager to talk with her about. So, uh, Dr. Scarlett, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Yes, and for we actually tried to record earlier. We got uh, you know lightning and some other stuff happened here in Minnesota, <laughs> so we had to reschedule. So I appreciate you coming back uh, on the show, and hopefully we have some time to talk about hockey and some other stuff, which um, we have dueling fan bases from from back, yes. from back east. So we sure do. Uh, <laughs> you're a Rangers fan, and I grew up a Flyers fan, so we might have to have right. some, we might have to have some words. Um, you know, just a few. Just a few. Um, so, yeah, welcome. And you're out in uh, sunny San Diego, I believe, correct? That's right. That's right. And the weather is 70 degrees and sunny, as usual. And it's about 30 and snowy here, so it's, <laughs> it's, it's, a, good, it's a good difference. Right. So, yeah, I wonder if – I know you've been giving a lot of interviews and different podcasts and shows, but uh, maybe if you introduce yourself to, to our audience, you have, you have such a fascinating uh, backstory just to kind of fill people in on who you are and how you arrived at you know, your profession and everything. Sure. Um, so I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I was born in Ukraine, actually. And when I was just a few months short of my third birthday, uh, my family and I were exposed to radiation from Chernobyl, which affected all of our health statuses. And for me specifically, uh, radiation poisoning meant that I was especially affected by changes in the weather. So when it would be really hot, my nose would bleed without clotting and I would have to go to the emergency room. And when it would rain or when there would be snow or any kind of precipitation, I would get severe migraines, which would often lead to seizures. And um, years later, um, my family and I were granted a refugee status because of the political and uh, just unsafe um, situations that were happening in Ukraine. And so we were able to immigrate to the United States. And um, I, a few years after immigrating here, I found out about the X-Men. I, I watched the first X-Men movie, and I was absolutely blown away um, because this was kind of my first introduction to superheroes. I'd heard of mm -hmm. Batman. I'd heard of Superman. But... Um, to actually watch the first X-Men movie made me see that um, the superheroes were quite amazing, and many of them were mutants, um, kind of like the way I saw myself. Many of them had exposure, exposure to radiation, like I did. And rather than seeing themselves as a victim, as I did prior to that for most of my life, um, they saw themselves as survivors. They used their special abilities to help other people. And that was the first time that I thought, hey, maybe there's something to this. Maybe I can also use my experience to help others. And I think that's when I started thinking about psychology more seriously. I, I always was interested in it, but that was when 
it really hit me that that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And then years later, after I got my doctoral degree, I was doing my postdoctoral training at Camp Pendleton here in San Diego, and I was working with active duty Marines with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I was incorporating um, superheroes into therapy with them because over and over and over again, many of them kept stating that they wanted to be Superman or they wanted to be Batman. And they didn't believe that they were superheroes. They believed they were somehow a failure just because they developed a mental health disorder. And this is where my geeky knowledge came in. And we started exploring superheroes, realizing that most of them had some kind of vulnerability, whether it's kryptonite or whether it's their own pain and suffering. And that these vulnerabilities not only did not make them any less of a superhero, but actually enhanced their superhero potential and maybe were the reason that they became superheroes. So it was through that that superhero therapy was born. I'm by no means the only therapist using this technique, but I've been extremely honored and extremely grateful to be able to use something I love so much to incorporate pop culture into therapy to help other people. Wow, that's just amazing. And when did the spark for you happen between you know doing this clinically, kind of using the this pop culture examples from comic books and, and films in your therapy, transition to you know, this is a book. This is something that I could package for people, not just that I'm working with, but on a more broader audience. I wish there was a short answer to this. <laughs> I think it was kind of a process. You know, I was I was implementing pop culture and therapy for a while and not thinking anyone would be interested in this. And then I went to San Diego Comic-Con and met other therapists, um, in particular, I met Pat O'Connor, who uh, created Comicspedia, where he cataloged specific comic books that can be used in therapy for different disorders, mm-hmm. as well as Josue Card- uh, Cardona, who is um, uh, a counselor who's behind Geek Therapy. And I, I thought, wow, what a fascinating concept. And that's essentially what I'm doing, too. And so I wanted to put together a manual for either clinicians or, or some kind of a self-help book. Um, to help people um, to incorporate uh, their uh, pop culture interests in therapy. So I thought I wanted to create a book that's sort of for geeks, by geeks. And so I started um, applying to different publishers and agents, and I I went through a lot of rejection. Uh, Most of it was actually very nice. Most rejection letters I got were very kind, kind of, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, great concept, but not for us. Mm -hmm. One was kind of rude, where the... Yeah, um, I got one that said, this book would never work because, quote, uh, girls don't read comic books and boys don't read books. Wow. Was that letter from 1983 or something? (laughs) Uh, No, this is from a few years ago. And I was so discouraged by this. I, I almost gave up. And it really helped reading about authors that I really admire, like Neil Gaiman and, and J.K. Rowling, and how how many times they had their own setbacks too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, kind of miraculously, uh, I was contacted by Little Brown, uh, who's of course J.K. Rowling's publisher, and they uh, apparently had been following my work and were very interested and, and asked me if I wanted to write this book, which is exactly what I'd been trying to pitch for a couple of years prior. And uh, it was just match made in heaven. Uh, my editor is absolutely incredible. He's 
um, his vision for this work was just on point. He and I work really well together. And we were lucky enough to get Wellington Alves, who is a Marvel artist, mm-hmm. um, who really believes in this project. And we were able to get him to do the artwork for this book. Yes, and the artwork is definitely something I want to dive into because that it really brings some of the concepts to life in such a good way. Thank you. In the in the book. So one of the most interesting things about this book is it seems, and I wonder how purposeful this is, it seems to be written in a very accessible way. So you don't need to be a quote-unquote expert in, in therapy to kind of pick up this book and use it. So what what's, I guess, backing up, what's the target audience for the book? Who are you hoping picks this up and, and reads it or buys it or, like, lends it to a friend? Like, who are you looking to target here? Thank you. I'm hoping that anyone 13 and above okay. would be able to benefit from this. That's not to say that children under 13 would not. There are some darker topics that for some kids, even as younger as, t- as young as 10, might be perfectly fine, but for some might be a little bit um, too dark. Um, I do talk about sexual assault and I talk about suicide and cutting. Um, so depending on the um, mental development of the child, um, it may or may not be uh, appropriate for children under 13. Um But I do think that um, anyone who's ever struggled with depression or trauma, anxiety, eating disorder, especially if they have any kind of interest in superheroes or uh, fantasy like Harry Potter or maybe science fiction like Doctor Who, um, I'm hoping that it would be of interest to those individuals. I've often heard from my patients and from other people that um, the books that they read, the self-help books, um, they don't relate to because they don't feel included. Um, and so this book, the intention of this book was primarily to target the population that is interested in pop culture that identifies as either a geek or a nerd or just, just enjoys maybe reading fiction or, or watching um, comic book movies or fantasy movies. Um, and so this book is part self-help book and part fiction because it includes six fictional characters that um, represent these um, different genres like fantasy and sci-fi. Um, and, and each of the characters struggles with some kind of a mental health disorder while also trying to fulfill their superhero duties. Um, and they all attend a superhero training academy to help them better manage their mental health difficulties and teach them how to be a better superhero. The structure is really amazing. I think it definitely reading it, it felt like, okay, this is geared towards young adults and, you know, I'm reading it as a 40 year old therapist. And I, <laughs> so I'm kind of looking at it through a couple of different lenses. And one of the things as a, as a therapist, a trained therapist in things like cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy is when I try to tell my patients that I work with about some of the concepts of acceptance and commitment therapy, which is often abbreviated ACT. Yep. Trying to educate people about ACT, even ther- new therapists in training who are trying to learn ACT, it's, it's a little cumbersome. It can be very challenging to, to pick it up and kind of understand what the premise and what some of the concepts are about. And I really appreciated how the book really cut through a lot of the jargon and just presented things in a very easy to understand manner with like specific examples of here's this character and here's what they're going through and here's a skill they can use. Can you talk about coming up with that? 
Thank you. Sure. Um, I was extremely privileged to be able to do series of workshops with creators of ACT. Um, so I, I did a couple of workshops with Stephen Hayes, who was one of the co-founder of co-founders of acceptance and commitment therapy, um, as well as Kelly Wilson. And they were both just absolutely incredible as my role models and mentors. And then my own mentor in, in my personal life, um, Dr. Jill Stoddard, who I work for currently, um, has been absolutely monumental in helping me be better at incorporating ACT into therapy and better understand these concepts. All of them separately have also been very encouraging about my work. I've been able to talk to Steve Hayes about my, my work with superhero therapy. And he, of course, is one of the um, endorsers of this book. He wrote an, a beautiful endorsement mm -hmm. blurb in the back of the book. And just hearing these individuals um, support this therapy was very moving for me. And um, talking to them about these concepts, the concepts, I think, clarified it more for me and was extremely helpful in helping me simplify some of these, I think, really challenging concepts and, and then putting them into um, into these examples that will hopefully be digestible for people of any age reading this. You know, the folks who listen to this podcast are mainly, you know, I talk in episodes interviewing people about role-playing games and other online card games and, you know, more or less gaming. So for people who might not be that familiar with, with therapy in general and specifically ACT, how would you it's kind of a big question, but how would you summarize, like, what is therapy? What is ACT? Sure. Um, therapy itself can mean many things, but essentially the goal of therapy is to help the individual lead a life that is most meaningful to them, that would be most functional. And by functional, we mean that would allow them to engage in their uh, meaningful activities like going to work, engaging with family, with friends, etc. ACT specifically focuses on learning to manage things that might not necessarily be within our control, like difficult emotions, painful losses, chronic conditions, while mindfully observing these changes and living our life in accordance to what's most meaningful. Um, so I look at it as almost like a superhero's journey because it teaches us how to have these skills for managing whatever unpredictable things life throws our way and how to always remember what's most important to me, what kind of superhero do I want to be? And if I want to be the kind of superhero that helps other people, then how can I do that even while I'm struggling too? And maybe one way to do that is to provide some care for myself first. We call that self-compassion. How can I soothe my own pain so that I can also have the strength and resilience to help other people? So the book offers multiple skills to help the reader to learn to become a superhero that they want to be. So not, not like a DC or a Marvel superhero, but their own version of a hero, their own version of the person that they want to become. And every hero needs some villains to battle against. And <laughs> one of the things I love about the book is how you, I mean, literally the villains are illustrated. So the four, the four main villains in the book are anxiety, shame, anger, and depression, um, kind of a four horsemen of mental illness. So yep. how did you land on those? 
Um, so I looked at some of the most universal emotions, and these seem to be the ones that people struggled with, with the most and people seem to want to avoid the most. Of all of these, from what I'm seeing as kind of the root of most mental health problems is shame. I think that when we shame ourselves about our own experience, for example, when we shame ourselves about feeling chronic pain or if we shame ourselves about feeling depressed, then it makes it a lot more challenging for us to um, to go through the difficulty that we're already going through. And in fact, that's what most people do when we are struggling. Rather than supporting ourselves, we might shame ourselves, only making the situation worse. And then when that happens, we might avoid the situation. We might want to either engage in unhealthy behaviors like binging, whether it's in drinking or watching television, um, but basically not handling the situation well. Um, and then other emotions like anxiety and depression, for instance, and anger can be problematic too. And these can sometimes be the um, the triggers for why people might not necessarily act in the most um, helpful manner. Uh, but I think more than anything, it is our, our shame and then also our actions that sort of um, that can trigger a lot of the problems that we might experience. So I wanted to have these four emotions illustrated and Wellington did an amazing job with them. And I wanted to show that even though it appears that these are our enemies, we can learn to manage them and we can learn to live with them almost in harmony. And, and you, you highlighted shame there and shame I think is the illustration that sort of had had the biggest reaction for me when I was looking through the book. So for those who uh, haven't seen the book yet, how would you paint a picture of shame <laughs> for how it's drawn um, in the book? Because it's pretty fantastic. Uh, yeah, thank you. I think he uh, shame uh, looks quite revolting. He, he's kind of pinkish. I wanted him to, in some ways, not quite so literally, but in some ways almost resemble vomit. Like he's just so gross. And um, he's holding a sign that, you know, says a thousand and one reasons why you're worthless. And, um, and he's got a megaphone. So, yeah. And he's shouting this. That's right. He's shouting this. And so uh, it's basically this very, very loud internal self-critic that's trying to make you feel as if everyone in the world can see and hear your every imperfection under a magnifying glass. And that's all they can see and all they can think about. Um, in reality, of course, that's not true. Most of our imperfections are only perceived imperfections, really only seen to us. I, I think most people don't really think about it or notice. But I think for us, when we are uncomfortable about something or um, are insecure about something, we think that the rest of the world sees us in that same light. You know, this is an exercise that I'll sometimes do with my patients of, you know, whatever their issue is, whether it's it's chronic pain or or fear, anxiety or any number of things, is to ask them to like draw a picture of it. Not literally, but even in the session being like, okay, if your pain had a color, what color would it be or how big would it be? And they keep putting together this picture and eventually they have this fully formed monster that they can describe. Mm -hmm. And I think that gives that gives the person dealing with that a bit a bit of power to mm -hmm. not only have this vague concept, but to actually visualize it and be like, oh, okay, there it is. Exactly. 
Exactly. There is an expression that says name it and you tame it and and then feel it and you heal it. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. I think that when we are hiding out from our emotion monsters, they're big and terrifying. They're the monsters in our bed, under our bed. They're the monsters in the closet that we don't want to face. Um, but when we actually take our time and either draw them or look at them, study them, experience them, they're a lot less intimidating. My favorite picture in the book is where one of the superheroes, Katrina, is first kneeling over. She, she, she's hunched on the ground and she's terrified of these monsters that are hovering over her looking gigantic and enormous and terrifying. And then when she gets up and looks at them, they're smaller than she is. Mm. They're a lot more manageable and they, you know, they're still not, uh, the best kind of things to hang out with, but they seem a lot more friendly. Um, and, and that's really the biggest message of the book is that it's not that the emotions are our enemy. It's that avoidance of the emotions mm -hmm. makes them a lot less manageable. And so talk about that, because definitely in, in therapy, that is a theme I come back to over and over again, is just this concept of avoidance and why it's so important. So how, how do you introduce that with your patients and maybe even from examples in the book, how, how is it talked about? Um, with each patient, I might have a different approach. But uh, with someone that I'm using superhero therapy with, I might initially talk about a character. Uh, for example, I love talking about Lord of the Rings. So we'll talk about Who does Frodo. Who yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone should. Sure. Um, so we'll talk about Frodo, for example. So we'll talk about Frodo using the ring. And initially, he has a lot of benefits of using the ring because when he puts on the ring, he's kind of invinci invisible, he can hide, he doesn't have to feel afraid. However, there is a setback to this in that every time he puts on the ring, the ring's power over him grows. He's much more um, noticeable or detectable uh, to Sauron, who is the, the main villain in uh, Lord of the Rings. And then the uh, these horrible creatures, right, the Nazgul or the Ringwraiths. Mm -hmm. um, and these creatures are quite dangerous. Uh, in fact, at one point after Frodo puts on the ring, the creatures stab him, nearly killing him. So the ring, while it has a short-term relief because it makes Frodo invisible and allows him to hide from combat, for instance, makes it puts him in danger ultimately so i use this as kind of an example to demonstrate sometimes our avoidance techniques might feel good in a short term they might allow us to feel relief but in the long term they might not be safe or they might not be very productive for what we want to accomplish so whether we're talking about smoking or drinking which might not be safe in the long run mm -hmm. Or whether we're talking about something that seems more um, more mellow, maybe like binging on television and procrastinating doing our homework or avoiding going to social events. In the long term, these might, at least in some situations, not be very helpful and not be very productive. Um, so um, I'll use Lord of the Rings as an example and then assist the client with um, generating their own examples of how some avoidance techniques might have in a short term been helpful, but in the long term been a lot less helpful. Yeah, and that's a really interesting, you know, one of the things you talked about working with, with veterans, you know, working with younger patients. I think there's sometimes a fine line between 
avoidance, escapism, and then hobbies. <laughs> yes. And how do you draw those lines with, with the patients that you meet with? I love this question. I get this question almost at every interview and almost at every panel that I do. <laughs> and really, as therapists, our goal is to allow our client to function, right? In order for something to be a disorder, it has to cause some kind of dysfunction. So if someone engages in, um, let's say, video games or cosplaying or comic book reading, whatever it is, to the extent that they're missing work, they're not spending time with their family, they're failing in school. This is what we would call a dysfunction. It's affecting multiple areas of their life and not allowing them to thrive as a human being, not allowing them to function. However, if this is something that they do because they like to either unwind or even better, connect with other people. Maybe this is activity that allows them to make new friends or to feel like they're understood by others, whether it's by real people or even fictional characters. Um, and if this activity then allows it, allows this individual to um, engage in other meaningful areas of their life, then that's perfectly fine. So really, the line is not very clear. It's, it's kind of gray. Uh, but the main question is, does this activity allow this person to function or maybe does the amount of this activity allow this person to function? And if not, then how can we balance it out with their other meaningful events? And so how do you do that with someone who maybe doesn't have the most accurate read on what is and is not effective for them at that moment? Mm -hmm. That's a great question, and it's one that we can spend probably hours <laughs> talking about. Uh, but the short version of that is – I might ask them, what kind of person would you want to be? What kind of superhero do you want to be? Uh, one of my favorite tasks is, um, if there was a comic book written about you, how would you want it to go? What would you want this character to be like? So maybe this comic book would be about a character that likes reading comic books. And would there be anything else that would be interesting or important? Would this superhero be maybe saving people? Would this superhero be maybe somehow contributing to society? Maybe they would be uh, a car racer or a runner or a teacher or a fireman. So uh, by, by looking at the way that this individual wants to spend the rest of their life and how they might want to be remembered, what kind of legacy they want to leave behind, we can usually get at other meaningful things in that individual's life. And it doesn't have to be what's dictated by society. It can be whatever is meaningful to that particular person. So if that person wants to be remembered as someone that maybe uh, works a lot on video games, but maybe also spends some time with their, um, their gamer friends, then maybe we need to balance out their time between gaming online and maybe gaming with people in real life and maybe that's what we need to do for that individual so there would need to be a different approach for each individual patient depending on how they would like to live the rest of their lives with as few regrets as possible i think you do that in one of the the chapters where you talk about the superhero values and you have almost like the timepiece exercise where uh -huh. you have the different different core values or possibilities and the reader has to judge, you know, is this, is there just the right amount of this value in my life? Is it too much, too little, or is there none of it at all? And that's an exercise that I use with um, the patients I meet with to kind of 
get people away from thinking about goals because goals are very black and white and values mm-hmm. are a little bit more open-ended. And sometimes the example I use with, with veterans who maybe are, are new parents, because I, I work with some of the younger population, is you know, like being a good father, for example, is not not necessarily a goal. It's a value. It's not like you're a good father on Monday, you check it off the list and say, I'm done with that. Right. So why do you think it's so useful to talk about values in therapy? Um, because I think values are essentially our life directions. And uh, in order for a client to function best, they need to be living according to their values. I see far too many people um, avoiding things that are painful uh, because they don't know how else to manage. But um, there's all this research coming out now that when we make meaning in our lives, when we remember what all of it is for, we can face almost anything that we can face our biggest trauma. We can understand how to cope with depression, anxiety, all of it. And for many people, it allows them to overcome addiction disorders as well when they're able to remember what is all of this for. So for new parents, it might be this is for my family. Um, so I'm changing my behaviors for my family so that I can better support my family and spend more time with them. So, so many people at the end of their life um, have regrets, things like, I wish I spent more time with people I care about, I wish I didn't work quite as hard, or I wish I had more time to do things that I enjoy. So the goal of identifying values is to allow the person to, at this point in their life, start living their life in accordance to their heart and according to to their meaning um, in, in all of these directions. And for most of us, it's going to be very hard to balance all of them out at once. So we might need to maybe spend more time with our family and maybe another, um, another time more time with our friends, and it might be kind of a never-ending balance. But the goal is to allow the individual to um, live life as close to their chosen life directions as possible. And coming back to the the monsters that you have listed in the book, I think a lot. I think one of the things that gets in the way of people following through on values is anxiety and that avoidance or fear of failure or any number of things that will block people doing from some of the things they would prefer to do. So, how did the concept, the illustration for anxiety, come to be? In terms of uh, the way that it looks in the book? Yeah, yeah. So how, again, how would you describe that and how did it come up? How did you go back and forth with the artist to arrive there? Yeah, I, I, I wrote, I think, maybe one or two sentences, and then he sent me a picture. He's like, what do you think? And I was like, that's it. That's anxiety. <laughs> it was perfect. Um, so anxiety kind of looks like this part skeleton, part banshee <laughs> yeah. uh, in this like scary cloak. And, and she's holding a clock and it says you're late. And so, of course, it's, you know, many people's nightmare to be late for something very, very important and um, or maybe to be met by something that looks like a grim reaper. And so she's quite terrifying. And one of the reasons why I wanted to make sure to include anxiety is because, like you said, a lot of people perceive anxiety as an obstacle, as something that holds them back believing that they need to get rid of anxiety before they're able to do something that's important to them. And I'll be honest with you, I often have days where I feel the exact same way and have the exact same thought. Mm -hmm. 
and even as I was um, writing the book or, or submitting the book for publication, I had that same thought, like, I am so anxious right now. Maybe this book is not good enough and maybe I need to wait until I know what I'm doing and have more experience and be in this field a lot longer before I even try this out. Um, but the truth is, if we believe our anxiety provoking thoughts as facts, then we will always be waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for our life to be perfect, for our life to be anxiety-free and pain-free before doing anything. And that might mean that we don't really get to live at all. So, so many of my role models talk about um, following your fear and doing what's important anyway. Um, Carrie Fisher was a, mm -hmm. was a big pioneer and, and, and a big supporter of that in terms of be afraid by doing anyway. And I think that in this book, that's exactly what I wanted to illustrate is if you have anxiety, that's fine, but do it anyway. Mm -hmm. And that, that brings us to the chapter on the diffusion charm or diffusion spell. And diffusion mm -hmm. is one of those act concepts that can be a little murky to understand what it means. So how did you come upon this idea of talking about it as a charm or a spell in the book? <laughs> um, I'm a big Harry Potter fan. And so I, I love anything related to magic. So I wanted to use something that would be that would remind readers of maybe a fantasy book or maybe something like um, like a Legend of Zelda or Mario or um, something that would would seem almost like a charm or a spell or a potion. And a charm, it could be an incantation, something that you say. So with diffusion, it is a way for us to verbally kind of separate from our scary thoughts. So very briefly, fusion with thoughts means that we treat thoughts as facts. I sometimes use Professor Trelawney from Harry Potter as an example. Mm -hmm. So Professor Trelawney was kind of an unreliable psychic. She was an unreliable divination teacher, and she would constantly tell her students that they will die a really tragic, horrible death. And she would make dozens of predictions a day, and she, as far as I can recall, only had made two accurate predictions <laughs> in the entire Harry Potter series. So I think our mind is kind of like that. Our mind is like an unreliable psychic. So when we have a thought, for example, I'm going to fail, this thought is uh, can be really uh, terrifying and can keep us from attempting the very thing that we are afraid we're going to fail. Now, the diffusion uh, charm uh, can work uh, simply by identifying that this is a thought I'm having. This is not a fact. So even by stating I'm having a thought that I'm going to fail can allow us to have this degree of separation between the thought itself and a fact. Um, similarly, repeating the thought over and over and over again, like I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail. And doing that for one or two minutes can make these words sound meaningless over time, can make us see that this is just uh, kind of a jumbled message that our brain produces. It doesn't mean it's a fact. So rather than running away from thoughts, identifying thoughts for what they are, thoughts rather than facts, and engaging in them by saying them over and over and over again can potentially allow us to be less um, hooked by these thoughts, less um, less taken by them. Absolutely. Yeah, and I've done that with, with patients in appointments where whatever it is that anxiety is telling them, you know, have them repeat it in the session and they look at me like I'm a little silly. 
I'm like, no, trust me, just, you know, go with me for, for a few minutes here. They'll end up laughing after, like, repeating this for 30 or 40 seconds because it just it starts to sound ridiculous. And mm-hmm. that the, the word, the thought loses some of its power that it has when it's, like, kind of disconnected. Exactly. Exactly. That's been my observation as well. The next part of the, of the book that gets into this, which I love the title, it's uh, The Ultimate Weapon, The Sword of Willingness, uh, <laughs> which I, I saw, I turned the page and saw that. I was like, oh boy, this is going to be fun. Um, <laughs> so how, how does willingness fit into act, fit into therapy? And you talk a little bit about that if you would. Sure. Another word for willingness is acceptance, but I prefer the term willingness. Willingness is basically allowing ourselves to experience what's there anyway. It's kind of like if we walk into a loud uh, restaurant, for example, and maybe there is loud music playing and people are talking very loudly and we have to be there, maybe for a very important meeting, we can cringe for hours on end, uh, being very uncomfortable with the experience, or we can take a breath and sort of uh, listen to the noise and listen to the music and allow it to be there anyway, because it's not going anywhere. And the more we're willing to experience the discomfort that's present anyway, the more tolerable it will be and the less it will hold us back from doing other things that are important. And how does the pink unicorn come into <laughs> I love the example of pink unicorn. <laughs> For, um, with my patients, it's often chocolate ice cream. Yep, yes. I've done that. Um, my favorite example actually is for Harry Potter fans. I use pink Dementor. There you go. Um, so pink unicorn. So I usually ask my patients, or in this case, readers, how often in the past week they've thought of a pink unicorn. And usually I'll get people giving me big eyes as in, what's the matter with you? I don't think of such things. And um, so, of course, usually the answer is zero. And then I ask them to imagine a pink unicorn or sometimes a pink elephant. And I ask them to really imagine this creature standing right in front of them, really focused on its Pepto-Bismol-like color. And then for a minute, I, I ask them to do everything possible to not think of the pink unicorn, to not think of the words pink or unicorn or anything related to it. And what I find and what my patients um, eventually start giggling about is that it's virtually impossible to do so. They might distract by thinking about something else, but sure enough, a couple of seconds later, there's that pink unicorn uh, kind of peeking out from behind the bush type of thing. So the idea is that the more we try to suppress and hide and run away from our thoughts or our emotions, the more they will want to come back. And let us uh, let us want to to see them and and, and hear them. Um, on the other hand, if we focus on just the pink unicorn and nothing else, so if I ask my client to not take their mind's attention from the pink unicorn for a couple of minutes, what they find is that after about thirty seconds, they get bored and their mind drifts somewhere else, and they don't want to think about the pink unicorn anymore. Um, and it's kind of like that with emotions and thoughts as well. That's not to say that we forget about these, but it might be less overwhelming if, you, if we focus on our experiences rather than run away from them. That seems to apply really well with individuals who have been through a traumatic experience or multiple experiences. You mentioned your work with veterans or 
sexual assault survivors. There's any number of things that patients will say, I don't want to talk about X, but X yes. keeps continuing to pop up at all the unwanted times. And, and I think part of our role as therapists is to kind of set the stage, have an environment where we spend a lot of time talking about X instead of trying to avoid it. Right, exactly, exactly. The examples that you provide, you have some of the heroes in the book who that that's kind of what's happened in their background. So, you know, we haven't really touched on the, the different heroes so much. How, how did you come up with the different concepts? I think there's about eight, eight or nine heroes in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, wanted to incorporate heroes that might be kind of similar to the heroes that a lot of uh, people in the pop culture community would enjoy. Um, for example, one of the characters is attending a wizarding college and another character is a time traveler uh, who um, has many lives and reincarnations. Um, so I wanted to use some examples from pop culture that might be kind of similar um, while at the same time incorporating real symptoms of real um, mental health illnesses that I've seen in practice and to make these characters come to life. And so I wanted to make these characters distinct while at the same time pointing out how similar they are, where even though they each have a different uh, mental health diagnosis, they each struggle with the exact same thing in terms of not wanting to experience their difficult emotions or thoughts um, being completely overpowered by, by these um, and not knowing how to get back to their heroic activities. And all of them being truly, genuinely authentic and wonderful people, just not knowing how to manage their symptoms and then learning how to do so over the course of the book and truly struggling with this, uh, at least for some time. And the way the book is introduced seems to be, I mean, it's very personal in that it, it starts with your story and your right. and your search for this kind of awakening of, of, of superhero powers. And what was it like to, why was it important to put that in the book? Um, I, um, I've gotten that question a couple of times. And, you know, a part of it was that I wanted to allow the reader to know that I understand vulnerability. And this chapter was probably the most excruciating to write, the first chapter. It was my account of my own personal trauma and what I had been through. And it was gut-wrenching gut and extremely difficult. And actually, while I was writing that chapter, my father had attempted suicide, which translated to one of the characters then having a friend who attempted suicide as well in the book. So that story was in part um, inspired by events in my own life. I wanted to not only ask my readers to be authentic and vulnerable with me or with the book, I wanted to show them my own transparency as well, um, because I believe that um, if I'm asking for my readers or my clients to do something that they might perceive as threatening, like being vulnerable, I need to be able to do that too. And you continue to do that on your on your website, which is the superherotherapy.com. You know, even with I think in February you had posted about you know your you know your background as a refugee and that this is what a refugee looks like. And right, it seems like you continue to use your story to 
try to help others um, not only connect with others, but be a little bit of an advocate? Um, that's my goal and my intention. I'm hoping it comes across that way. When I was growing up, I, uh, you know, this was before internet. Um, so I sought the comfort of books um, to allow me to feel understood. And I connected with fictional characters. And I remember what it was like when I met someone who also struggled with migraines when I was 13 years old. And it was so moving and so powerful for me to talk to another young person that understood what it was like to go through migraines and then later meeting someone else that had been through sexual assault and understanding that I wasn't alone in that either. And so it was really meaningful for me to find other people that had similar experiences. Um, and now with the internet, I find that that's what a lot of people seek. So I made it my mission to try to help other people either through my own experiences and stories or through what I've been learning, because I, I certainly can't relate to um, every experience and I can't relate to a lot of the issues that other people are facing. But at the very least, I can talk about what I'm learning. So my goal is to blog either about my life or about my experiences or about what I'm learning or about about movies or television shows that teach us these valuable lessons so that people can, at least through some medium, relate to their own experiences and better understand them. And in one way or another, I'm hoping that someone out there will find some kind of token or a thread for healing. Yeah. What kind of feedback have you gotten since you posted the, the refugee article on your site? Oh, gosh. Um, I've gotten a lot. I've gotten a lot of people thanking me for speaking out. I've gotten a lot of people from other countries reaching out about their experiences. I've gotten a lot of people um, just being grateful for this post. And a lot of people are telling me now that they're struggling with having their own family members uh, being granted the ability to immigrate it to, to the United States, either as an immigrant or as a refugee. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been really moving for me to um, be able to share my story and then also to see how it's been affecting other people. You know, for someone who has the certainly the privilege of being born here and not having to, to face that, that stigma and, you know, discrimination, I mean, what's it like for you being someone who has gone through, you know, multiple advanced degrees, you're now working to help military veterans of the United States deal with mental health issues, which is probably one of the more patriotic things you could do as as an American. And what is it like for the word refugee to be almost synonymous to some people with terrorist or criminal or bad person? What is, what's that been like over the past year or three? Thank you for asking that very powerful question. You know, I, I think I've been very lucky in that I get to work uh, with both uh, I used to work with the military and now I work primarily with the civilian sector. So I've been able to see both sides Um, to answer your question in terms of what's it like to hear that word associated with terrorism. It's been in one word triggering. It's been extremely triggering in terms of um, the way that my family and I were treated back in our home country. It's been really, um, really painful because I think that people don't fully understand what refugees are and that it doesn't matter what country you're from. 
you know, whether you are from um, North Korea, whether you're from one of the um, one of the countries that are currently on the ban list. Um, if you are a refugee, it means that you are running from terror. It means that you are trying to protect your family. And the last thing that it means is that you are someone that is likely to inflict something like this on others. In addition, when someone is granted a refugee or an immigrant status, they're very thorough. Um, we're talking one to two year intensive checks um, that I know very personally about how thorough they are um, before the person is allowed to enter this country or nearby countries. So... Um, I think that people are acting this way or saying these things because they're afraid, mm -hmm. because they don't understand. Um, so I'm hoping one of my goals is to provide education about who refugees are and the kind of pr process we go through in order to seek shelter, in order to seek safety, and then also the kind of things that we might be able to bring should we be allowed passage as my family and I were. Mm -hmm. and, and this is... Um, it's hard to put in the words some of these questions because it's such like it, it, there's a lot of emotions on my end too of just the kind of frustration of the way things have been going here in you know the past year or actually longer than that politically but you know I've been reading a lot of things from other psychologists and other people who are trying to figure out ways to bridge that political divide and I don't even know if political is the right word but kind of the mindset of people who are see the world in a certain way and folks who see the world in a completely different way. And it's like those two groups don't talk to each other anymore. And I've been trying to f figure out ways to navigate that. And I wonder in your role, not only as, as an individual, you know, living with your reality, but also as a psychologist and maybe even working with patients who are dealing with similar issues, what advice do you have for, for people out there to try to navigate that, to try to communicate with people who they might not agree with on many of these issues that are becoming more difficult to escape from in day-to-day -day conversation. Absolutely. <clears throat> Absolutely. And what I found more than anything is that calm and kind conversations can go a long way. The other person might not agree, but if we're able to express our point of view well respectfully hearing the other person's and then providing our observations, then at least some individuals might consider that they might not have been fully accurate, that this view that they might have had might not have been completely legitimate. You know, there was uh, an individual, I can't remember his name, he's an African-American individual that spent many years um, specifically engaging in very compassionate and kind conversations with the members of the Ku Klux Klan um, for the purpose of understanding of where they were coming from. He genuinely wanted to get the idea of what made them have the beliefs that they did. And many of them ended up leaving the KKK after speaking to him because they realized how close-minded they were being. So what I've been working with both myself and um, a lot of my clients is to practice first and foremost self-compassion because when we get triggered, it can be really difficult to cope and then practice patience and practice um, active and compassionate listening 
with individuals that we might not agree with, which is hard to do over, let's say, Facebook or social media, but is a lot easier to do in person. Right. Twitter is not a good forum for having nuanced conversations. <laughs> it certainly makes it more challenging. Yes. The interesting thing is I think there's some frustration where it always seems like it's the person who's being oppressed or put down or vilified in some way. They're the ones that are encouraged to have the compassion and, you know, you need to be patient and take time. And it doesn't seem like that message gets to the other side of the equation. And I wonder just as an individual how frustrating that is for you. Yeah. Um, I mean, it certainly, it certainly is. And I think a lot of it, it might be kind of an attachment to how things should be. Mm. I find that compassion is a far greater strength than close-mindedness, I think, than villainy, than hatred. I think it's a lot easier to be angry and hateful than to try to have a compassionate and understanding approach. I think it takes a lot of strength and courage to do that. Yeah, I think in terms of skills, it's almost too easy to cut someone down or to make fun of someone or to dis discard someone, but it takes more time, more effort to pick them up. Um, right. And I think that just happens on a, a bigger and bigger scale. And it's just, I'm, I'm sure it's quite scary for a lot of people out there at the moment. I think so, too. Speaking of, you know, divides that will not be crossed and maybe on a bit of a lighter note, how did you become a Rangers fan? <laughs> uh, well, uh, my family and I immigrated to the United States, um, and when when we did, uh, we lived in New York City, and uh, we just missed uh, the Rangers winning the Stanley Cup by one year. But um, so it must have been ninety five then. Mm -hmm, okay. Yeah, and uh, became really big fans. I've always loved hockey. My brother and I. And it was something that we really bonded over. So I have really good memories of us watching hockey games and cheering for the Rangers. I was there the last game that Wayne Gretzky played. And oh, nice. Yeah, and then for the last few years, they came so close. They came so close, you know, doing so well in the playoffs. And so I will always be a diehard Rangers fan, although living on the West Coast now, I do also like the Sharks. But, you know, Rangers will always be number one for me. Yeah, I, I grew up outside of Philadelphia in New Jersey, and people would ask me, like, well, why aren't you a Devil, New Jersey Devils fan? And when I growing up in New Jersey, I couldn't even watch the Devils. They weren't on television because hmm. I was in South Jersey. So we got the Flyers. So you were closer. We got the Flyers games. That was our local team. So I always yeah. joke around that the Flyers won two Stanley Cups in 74 and 75, and then I was born in 76, and they haven't won, <laughs> they haven't won since. So. I'm for going on, well, 40-plus now, and they, they have mm -hmm. not won a, a cup since I've been alive. So hopefully that but happens. Hey, you got Star Wars, though. You got Star Wars when you were born. Yeah, I was a little, little young for the first two, but I, rem <laughs> I remember going to the theater to see uh, Jedi. I, I wrote about right. that a couple years ago. Uh, I remember going with my dad, so that was a that's a memory that's burned in, <laughs> burned into my mind pretty well. <laughs> But thank you so much for this wonderful interview. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and, and thank you for um, you know agreeing to spend some time with me and talk about the book. And uh, just quickly, how how can people find you if they have any questions or if they want to get the book? 
Absolutely. So the book is available for pre-order on Amazon.com. Um, and I can be found on my website, superhero-therapy.com or on Twitter at Shadow Quill, Quill like the feather. And I'm also on Facebook. Excellent. Well, good luck with the book. I hope it goes well. And I, I'm really excited for a lot of people to get their hands on it and benefit from it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Certainly. Take care. Have a wonderful day. Thanks. You too. Bye.